Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Amada Sandoval, and I'm the director of the Princeton University Women's Center. We are so pleased to see all of you out here tonight. On behalf of the center, I'd like to welcome all the members of the Princeton University community, as well as our guests from the Women in Business Alliance program of the Princeton Regional Chamber of Commerce. Tonight we have the privilege of welcoming two inspiring and accomplished women to engage in a conversation about the ways that we, as a society, socialize boys and girls, men and women, to judge their worth by status, prestige, financial and material success. Standards we champion at the expense of our relationships and of our physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being. But first, an introduction. Our next speaker, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Emerita Professor of Politics and International Affairs, is an accomplished scholar having written or edited six books. She's currently the president and CFO, CEO of The New America, a nonpartisan public policy and idea incubator based in New York and DC. Dr. Slaughter has deep roots in Princeton. As a member of the Princeton University class of 1980, Slaughter was among the pioneering generation of women students in the early days of coeducation. After completing doctoral studies at Oxford University and teaching at Harvard Law School for eight years, Dr. Slaughter came back to Princeton as a faculty member and ultimately served as the first woman dean of the Woodrow Wilson School from 2002 until 2009. Dr. Slaughter went to Washington in 2009 as the director of policy and planning for then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Dr. Slaughter's personal essay, Why Women Can't Have It All, published in the Atlantic Magazine in 2012, describes her reasons for walking away from that job and her desire to spend more time with her family. This became the most read article in the history of The Atlantic and was a catalyst for a renewed interest in the challenges of managing a successful career while nurturing a healthy family. Dr. Slaughter's recent TED Talk further poses questions to about our culture of measuring success as career achievement for men and success for women as having what men have. Dr. Slaughter is an ideal interlocutor and conversational partner for Ariana Huffington on these topics and we are so pleased to have her here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. So I'm going to tell you some of the things you do know about Ariana Huffington, and then I'm going to tell you some of the things you may not know. So what you know is that she's the chair and the president and the editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post, uh, the Huffington Post Media Group, which um, you take for granted that the HuffPost is part of your lives, uh, and you take for granted that HuffPost is part of your lives in just about every dimension of your lives. What I don't think you recognize is just how innovative all of that is. The Huffington Post, because I'm old enough to remember when, it was, when uh, Ariana created it, was initially something that people were very skeptical about. You know, this, this internet 
uh, magazine, newspaper, uh, all online, all digital. Uh, and Arianna Huffington not only built it, but she has been steadily ahead of the curve at every point in building it out and really, I think, inventing a new form of digital journalism around the idea of verticals, around the idea of uh, audience participation, of uh, culling the very best, of combining that with really spectacular uh, content that, that HuffPost uh, reporters produce. Uh, and now, as always, she's one step ahead and has just put together World Post, which if you haven't seen it, uh, she put together with Nicholas Bergruen and the Bergruen Institute, which is uh, putting out really high quality uh, global journalism. So you know that. Uh, you may know that in 2012, uh, the HuffPost won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for national reporting. You may know uh, that Arianna Huffington has been on so many lists of most powerful women that I could read them uh, for the next five minutes. I'll just list a few, the Forbes Most Powerful Women list uh, and Time Magazine's list, not of the most powerful women, but of the world's uh, 100 uh, most influential people. You probably don't know uh, that she moved from Greece to England when she was 16 and that she graduated with an MA in economics and that she became president at 21 of the uh, Cambridge Union, of the famous debating society uh, in Cambridge. You probably don't know that Thrive is her 14th book. I could go on with her CV, but what I want to tell you uh, is I was recently uh, at her book party uh, in New York for the release of Thrive. And I'd had the privilege of reading it uh, in manuscript, uh, and you're gonna hear about it, uh, but it, it, again, is, I think, she's got her finger on the pulse of where we're going. Uh, but at this book party, it was a pretty classic New York book party. Uh, I, there, were, there were black limousines three blocks deep. You had to wade your way in. There were all these people. I, I watched uh, Tina Brown talking to Judy Roden and all these young women around like, oh my God, look, Tina Brown and Judy Roden talking to each other. And Ariana gave a, a little pricey of her book, but what was really striking was that Mika Brzezinski uh, and a number of other uh, very well-known women got up and essentially gave a tribute to Ariana, not Ariana Huffington, the founder of HuffPost, the world-known businesswomen, but as kind of their older sister as the woman who looked after them, as the woman who called them always and said, how are you doing, and have you gotten enough sleep? And I thought, what a wonderful tribute, because I've been to lots of New York book parties, but rarely have I seen not only women celebrating other women uh, in the way that these women were doing, but also simply the quality of a very human relationship uh, coming through, even amid all the celebrity and glitz uh, that often attends such occasions. So that's the Ariana Huffington I'd like to introduce now. Uh, an entrepreneur, uh, a successful businesswoman, a writer, an author, a thinker, an innovator, and a human being. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. And uh, following Amada and following the group that has helped put this together. Thank you to the Chamber of Commerce. Thank you to the Women's Center. But following what Anne-Marie said really underlies 
the need for women to support each other and to really be there for each other, especially during these times of intense transition. And as Madeleine Albright famously said, there is a special place in hell reserved for women who don't support other women. <laughs> And Anne-Marie has always been so supportive of so many women, including me and Thrive, which she blurbed. And um, she wrote a beautiful post about how she thrives by watching her birds. And uh, I actually want to start by quoting something which I love from it, which is that striving is not antithetical to thriving if we are lucky enough to do work that we love. But the message of thriving is the importance of not striving all the time, of kicking back and meditating, sleeping, reflecting, and wondering. And I love this. It is to build time into our days, months, and years in which we stop wanting and needing and pushing and multitasking. Stop, breathe, smile, center yourself, remember what really matters. Now, what is amazing about that is that it seems in a way obvious, and yet it is completely antithetical to how millions of people, especially successful people, of people who want to succeed, lead their lives. And that's why I'm so excited that we are living at this moment of transition, that I think when we look back, it's going to be equivalent to moving from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance. And we are going to look back and say, do you remember those days when we really believed that the only way to succeed was to burn out? <laughs> do you remember those days at Princeton when people supposedly had to choose between two of three things, sleep, social, fun, and grades, and you had to only pick two of three here at Princeton? We have to end that belief, guys, tonight. And we are going to say, do you remember that there were days when actually we thought it was okay for successful men and women to keel over in their 50s with heart attacks or clots? Because, well, of course, you know, they sacrificed themselves on the altar of success. And so I want to very quickly talk about these three megatrends that are converging. The first one is exactly this recognition that our current life, the way we have been leading, has become unsustainable. And that's where we need the third women's revolution. You know, the first one was about giving women the vote. The second about giving women access to all jobs and to the top of all fields. And the third one is about women saying, we don't want just to be at the top of the world. We want to change the world. Because the way it is constructed at the moment, designed by men, though I'm sure none of the men present, <laughs> is not working. It's not working for women. It's not working for men. And today is Earth Day, and let us remember, it is also not working for polar bears. And we see that three quarters of our healthcare costs are for, for preventable, chronic, stress-related diseases. We see that increasingly companies are recognizing that the health of their employees 
is very necessary and an important part of the health of their bottom lines. And so 35% of American corporations now have introduced some form of stress reduction practice. But we now have these two worlds coexisting, which I'm sure is exactly how it was in the transition from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. You have some of the most barbaric practices of corporations expecting their employees to be permanently on, although even Goldman Sachs sent a memo to their analysts recently encouraging them to take weekends off, which was a very radical thought. <laughs> and then you have all these new practices, both at the individual level and at the company level and at the global level. We have 11 um, sites acro across the world and we are tracking what is happening in this area. In Germany recently, the la la then labor minister, now defense minister, Ursula von der Leyen, did an analysis of the cost of burnout on the German GDP and encouraged America, German companies to change their practices. And Volkswagen, for example, came forward and started giving their employees company phones that are automatically turned off at uh, 6 p.m. and turned on again at 7 a.m. And that's Germany, it's not Greece, okay? <laughs> so, another piece of evidence about how unsustainable um, our world has become comes from my own personal journey. It's the story with which I opened my book. And it was about my collapsing on, six, on the 6th of April 2007 from burnout, exhaustion, and sleep deprivation hitting my head on my desk, breaking my cheekbone, getting four stitches on my right eye. And as I was coming to in a pool of blood, beginning to ask myself the question that Greek philosophers and other philosophers have asked forever, what is a good life? What is success? Because by conventional definitions of success, I was successful. But by any sane definition of success, if you are lying in a pool of blood on the floor of your office and you have not been shot, you are not successful. <laughs> and then I saw that this was happening all around me in one form or another. The second trend, which is an incredible source of optimism, is that scientific evidence now has backed ancient wisdom that sleep, meditation, pausing, making sure there are renewal spaces in our lives is essential. And these are actually performance enhancement tools, which is why athletes are ahead of the rest of us in incorporating them in their practices, which is why the LeBron James video on YouTube of him meditating has gone crazy viral. And what is fascinating about that is that we are seeing that when we integrate the third metric of success that I write about, the first two being money and power, the third being our well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving, not only are we better at whatever we are attempting to do, our jobs, our startups, our professional success, but at the same time, we come to recognize that we are more than our jobs and we are more than our professional success. And this is incredibly liberating. 
And when more and more people recognize that, we are going to be able to solve problems at every level in a much deeper way, including in Washington, D.C. If you look at the, how dysfunctional our system has become, don't you wonder why is it that so many leaders always take the decision, cast the vote that is the easy one, the one that will make it more likely they will get reelected? And it's really about the fact that they have completely identified who they are, not just their success, but often their very survival with their job. And recently, um, I taped the Super Soul Sunday with Oprah, which is airing on Mother's Day, and she asks all her guests the same question. What is it that you know for sure? And what I replied is, what I know for sure is that however magnificent your job is, Oprah, or however magnificent anybody's job or professional success is, who we are, the essence of who we are, is more magnificent. And when we recognize that, then our lives are truly transformed. The third trend has to do with the growing recognition among people in the decisions they make that life is shaped from the inside out. And 2013 was the tipping point. CEO after CEO started coming out, not as being gay, but as being meditators. <laughs> you had Ray Dalio, the founder of uh, Bridgewater, the biggest hedge fund in the world, who said he's been meditating over 40 years and considers it the essential foundation of his success. Mark Benioff of Salesforce, who said he's been meditating for 25 years. Mark Bertolini, Bertolini the CEO of Aetna. And I asked um, a couple of them, why did they decide to come out in 2013? <laughs> I mean, they've been doing it for years. And the answer had to do with the fact that up until now, meditation, quiet time, renewal periods were seen as flaky, new agey, Californian, not... <laughs> you know, not fit for CEOs of public companies. And this has changed. And now people are willing to share their practices. And incidentally, when you hear the word meditation, you can substitute any word that means something equivalent to you. It could be prayer. It could be contemplation. One of my favorite quotes that until very recently thought was um, by Gladstone, the English Prime Minister, and now it's disputed, so I'm just saying that since I'm at Princeton, I don't want anybody to say I'm misquoting Gladstone, but if you can find out exactly who said it, great. So far, we haven't been able to, but I still love it. <laughs> Apparently, Gladstone or someone said, I pray every day for one hour, except when I'm very busy, when I pray for two. And I love this because so often I hear from a lot of people, you know, I'm just starting, um, I have so much to do, I want to build this startup or do really well in my job, I don't have the time to do these things. And the truth is that the more challenging our circumstances, the more we don't have the time not to do these things. Because that's how we can connect with our own center of wisdom, strength, and peace that 
every religion, every philosopher, every poet has written about. And when we connect to that place, that's where our resilience comes from. And that's where we can overcome obstacles and tap into resources we never even thought we had. So let me just wrap it up by saying that if we are lucky, we have 30,000 days to play the game of life. How we play it depends on what we value. If we only value money and power, we are never going to have enough. If we also value what connects us with ourselves, giving to others, making our life about something more than ourselves, then we will truly live lives of meaning and purpose. And if you want a confirmation of that, just remember the last time you were at a friend's memorial. Eulogies have nothing to do with our LinkedIn profiles. <laughs> have you ever heard um, anybody say during a eulogy, you know, George was amazing. He increased market share by one third. <laughs> The problem is that the world keeps sending us incessant flashing signals to keep climbing the ladder, being always on, making money, and there's nothing wrong with all these things. It's just when they become our exclusive preoccupation that they become toxic. But these are the signals that the world constantly sends us. So we need to create our own little tribes and our own daily rituals to remember to also go not just upward and onward, but inward. And one of my favorite quotes that I have in the book and that I remind myself of a lot is by Ian Thomas, who said, every day the world will yank you by the hand and say, this is important, and this is important, and this is important. You must worry about this, and you must worry about that, and you must worry about the other. And you must yank your hand back and put it on your heart and say, no, this is important. Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, so I have so many things I want to ask you about, but I am guessing a certain number of this audience are students, yes. and they are looking at you, and they are saying, this is great, this is wonderful, but you have built this incredible empire, and now that you've done it, you're telling us to thrive. Right. <laughs> but what were you doing when you were named head of the Cambridge Union? And what were you doing when you started to build HuffPost? And isn't it easier to say, okay, now you stop and you meditate and you sleep, but what about all those years before? So what would you tell students who aren't quite at the same stage of their careers uh, and how they should take that to heart, thinking about how hard you work to get where you are? That is such a key question. And before I answer it, and before I forget, I, I want to introduce the Princeton grads who are uh, now yes. running the Huffington Post, basically. And would you mind standing? Danny Sher and Koda Wang and Alexis Kleinman and Nina. <laughs> and uh, 
truly, absolutely terrific. And we have these conversations because the truth is that, as I said a minute ago, if, when I look back at my life, if I actually had practiced what I'm talking about now, my life would have been, I would have been more effective, I would have worried less, I would have damaged my health and my relationships less, and I don't think I would have achieved anything less. Because the truth is that everything I'm saying is not against hard work. I mean, you know, you and I were discussing our schedules. It's not like I'm, I'm chilling under a mango tree right now. <laughs> you know, I, I love what I'm doing and I work hard. The difference is, the, the first difference is that I'm aware when I'm running out of battery. Yes. And before I wasn't. And that is a huge difference. That is like the beginning in a way. Because we now take better care of our smartphones than we take care of ourselves. We charge them up. We charge them up. You get, you get alerts, right? If you have an iPhone, like I do, you get alerts, like 20% battery remaining, 17% battery remaining. By about 13%, you get anxious and you're looking for a recharging shrine somewhere. Well, when I collapsed, <coughs> in the middle of building the Huffington Post, you know, I must have been below 0% battery remaining, and I was completely unaware of that. If you had asked me, and the reason is, as a lot of people are telling me on the book tour in different words, is a lot of us don't actually remember when the last time we were not tired. Yeah. We don't really remember what it is like to be vital, alive, and be able to deal with everything um, without just going through the motions because we have to go through our to-do list. Right. So I can say categorically that introducing these pauses, these renewal spaces in our lives is only going to make us more effective at whatever it is that we are doing. So I, I, I have to say I, I agree with you exactly in the sense of um, you know, that, that moment at night where at least I often just say, okay, I'm done. I, yes. I can't do any more. And I go to bed and I wake up early. And you can do in that first, you know, hour to two, you can do what would have taken you four to five hours. Exactly. Exhausted. Yes. And so and I, then I, when you wake up in the morning, first thing, um, do you look at your smartphone first thing? I did for a long time. And then I read Thrive and my life was transformed. <laughs> <laughs> Quite honestly, I now have a ritual that is exactly what you're talking about. I don't meditate because I have to work too hard at meditating. I'm spent, I have to, th it, it's so hard for me to constantly be calling my mind back. So I do, I read. So what I do is first thing every morning, I go down, I make my cup of coffee, I bring it back upstairs, I sit in bed and I drink that wonderful first cup of coffee. The taste is so great. And I read whatever book I was reading the night before. Oh. So it's, it's a novel or, a, or what's, it's something that's not work. And that's, that's sort of, and then I look at my smartphone. But only after I've had that sort of 20 minutes, which is the, as you say, it's the equivalent of meditation. Yes. It's, it's like time, time that is just for me. But it's also, a, it sends a very important message to ourselves that we are not just in reactive mode. That's right. Because the minute you move to your smartphone, you're you are reacting. dealing with whatever is coming your way, and you are dealing with other people's agendas right. and other people's needs. And the most creative people are those who are recognizing that we need quiet time to create. 
And that's why I quote Steve Jobs, who said that you know, his, most, uh, um, his best ideas that led to the most iconic Apple products came after Zen meditation. Or Bill Gates, who famously took think weeks without technology in a cabin. So increasingly, as creativity is the most important thing in a job, when you know, algorithms and technology are taking over so many other functions, having that time, which is becoming harder and harder, because of all the distractions and because of how addicted we are to technology, is going to be more and more important. So what do you consciously not get done? Well, I, because you have yes. to, I mean, to do this, you do have to say, there's some stuff I'm not going to get to. Because yes. otherwise you'd be in that endless hamster wheel. So what is it that you, it's okay, you just say, I'm not going to get this done and that's okay. Well, the first thing is exactly what you said, to, to be comfortable going to bed with incompletions. Right. You are not going to answer all your emails, and that's okay. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, and also, every day, one of the little steps I recommend in Thrive, and I, as you know, I try to have these very practical little steps, because ironically, if, you, if we introduce these practical little changes in our lives, then something is transformed. So then thriving doesn't become another thing on the to-do list. It just, you know, <laughs> from five to six, I'm going to thrive. thrive. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It becomes something that transforms everything we're right. doing. Right. And it starts for me with making choices. Like for me, you know, in the habit literature, they talk about what's the keystone habit that yes. you change, yes. right? So every, every one of us may choose a different habit that we need to start with. Mine was sleep. You know, I went from four to five hours to seven to eight hours, not overnight, but that was transformational. And then I started reading the science of sleep, and it really truly is a miracle drug. And it's, it is amazing to me that our culture, our macho culture, has treated sleep deprivation like a virility symbol. You know, like I was having dinner with a guy recently who bragged that he had only gotten four hours sleep yeah, the night before. And I wanted to say to him, but I didn't, you know what, if you had gotten five, this dinner would have been a lot more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, and you know, then a lot of women have actually, like Margaret Thatcher, yep. who tried to be more macho than the men, have been saying sleep is inefficient, you don't need sleep, and uh, sleep is for losers, you sleep when you are dead, you've heard all these things, right? <laughs> well, the truth is that it's, it's essential for our creativity, our mental clarity, our immune system, uh, our health, our memory. Our memory. It's now, sleep deprivation is now connected with Alzheimer's. Every major university is doing research in sleep. So this is really what is amazing about these times, that we now have data and scientific evidence to back what our mothers told us. <laughs> Yes, I was going to say, as, as constantly reminding, you know, you, you tell your kids to get more sleep. On the other hand, there is this, you know, particularly when they're trying to get into college and then they're in college, again, it's, it's what is it that you're going to give up? What yes. are you going to say, okay, I'm not going to do this activity or I'm not going to, uh, you know, get that project done. I mean, there, there is a finite trade-off. And so you do, I think you do have to, accept that you're going to get more of pleasure or sleep or downtime, but you're also going to get less done. I don't think actually you're going to get less done. I think what happens is that because we're going to be so much more present when we're doing things, mm -hmm. 
we're actually going to get more done. And it may mean saying no to things that we would have enjoyed. I mean, I'm, as you know, we're having this Thrive Conference in New York Thursday and Friday that you couldn't speak at, but a lot of people are coming from around the world, and Thursday night I would have loved to go to a dinner that they're having, but yeah. I said no. You know, because we're finishing at 9 o'clock, I want to go home, have a bath, go to bed, and be ready to start early in the morning. Because I know that if I don't, the way I'm going to feel on Friday yes. isn't going to be the way I want to feel in order to be able to give my best and give my 100%. And I feel that in increasingly that being effective is not enough. For me, I want to bring joy back into our daily lives. And, uh, and because, you know, the Greeks talked about enthusiasm, kind of being inhabited by God, and that's such an amazing quality. And we can bring it into our lives, but we can't bring it from burnout. So, in a way, the conversation around burnout is the sort of the most accessible conversation. But ultimately, the conversation, I was talking to a couple of students earlier who are studying philosophy, ultimately the conversation about is, what are we on this earth for? And what gives us meaning? And, um, and what is life about? And I think that's a very important conversation that we've kind of stopped having in the last two centuries. <laughs> <laughs> Except in philosophy departments. And even philosophy departments sometimes become reduced to linguistics and deconstructionism and, and not addressing these big questions, even if we don't have answers. What is the good life? Yeah, because that's what I love now, that you have, um, you have people who are not believers, who call themselves atheists, but who, I mean, like Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, um, said to me the other day, actually am a mystical atheist. You know, people who still uh, are in awe of the mystery of the universe yes. and all that we do not know. Don't you feel that? I, I feel that, I mean, that, that is what nature is to so many people. Yes. Again, and to your walk, birds. To, to, yes, and my birds. So I did. Tell I, us about I, wrote, your birds. I, I love that. I wrote on HuffPost about watching the birds at my feeder every morning because it gives me unbelievable pleasure. It scares my teenage sons. Uh, I talk to them. They, <laughs> But it's just such, a, it's these simple, simple pleasures that, that you build into your day. You know, you're also a leader. You're a, you're a, a, a a public leader in the sense of someone who's writing and thinking and talking, but you're the leader of a large organization. How do you, how do you get your employees to thrive, right? You can't command them to thrive. <laughs> that is sort of antithetical. How do you actually get an organization to live the spirit of what you're talking about from the top uh, in terms of actual practices and, and, and paying more than lip service? So we're doing it in two ways. Um, we started by making all these things big editorial initiatives. So in 2007, we launched a sleep section, for example, with all the latest science. We now have 27 sections on these themes. And what is interesting in terms of the zeitgeist is that, you know, HuffPost started as a purely politics and news yes. site. And now, even though our politics site is still the number one politics site, uh, last month, all these healthy living sections uh, overtook the politics sections in traffic. Really? And this is an indication of how much people want to be part of this conversation, both read about it and also share their own stories. And the, the other thing is that we've, um, 
we have two nap rooms at the Huffington Post. And uh, you know, when I first um, put them in three years ago, there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of eye-rolling, uh, that nobody would ever be seen dead walking into a nap room in the newsroom in the middle of the afternoon. Now they're perpetually booked. Um, we have uh, meditation, yoga, and um, actually our meditation class is being led by a religion editor who was uh, here at uh, oh, Paul Rauschenbusch. Oh, yes, yeah, that's great. Um, we have uh, breathing exercises because bre breathing is such an important part of, of living, of thriving, and um, healthy snacks, uh, matching people's donations, and giving them uh, paid time to volunteer. So. And we are constantly seeing what we do next. We just introduced email policies where yeah. people are not expected to be on after hours. I mean, there are always people on because we're a 24-7 media operation, but not the same people. I mean, are you thinking of doing something like that at the New America Absolutely. Foundation? Absolutely. And we are, um, I mean, the, the weekend, the email policies, yes. I think, are hugely important. I mean, we really have tried to do the same on weekends, and I've actually had to change my own uh, habits where when I write emails on weekends, I save them yes. and then send them off on, on Monday morning. Now, one of my assistants said, this is not a great start to the week. <laughs> so I hit send and they're going. <laughs> so I, I, but, but I find that my own email has actually dropped off hugely on the weekends. So there's, there is something going on there that yes. people are thinking it's, you know, it, it's okay. You can just say, or, or just simply say, sometimes I send emails and I just say, you know, no need to respond right. until, you know, until, until Monday or, or till tomorrow, that, that kind of thing. But I think that, the other thing we're doing is uh, we've got six weeks of paid time off and we're not letting people carry over more than a week. In other That's words, you right. can't carry over your vacation time to, to cash it out. You have to actually, you don't have to use all of it, you can carry some over, but people were carrying over two, three weeks a year and then building up these huge balances and cashing them out. So that's trading, turning time right. into money where we actually want people to take time. On the same premise that you said, that they will be better at their jobs if they take time. And, so. and they are. I mean, they that, are. They, demonstrably, that, and, and it's better for the company. That's what I loved about what Mark Bertolini did at Aetna when he discovered for him, after he broke his neck skiing, the value of meditation and yoga and acupuncture made them available to his 49,000 employees, and then brought Duke University in to study the impact, and they found a 7% reduction in healthcare costs and a 69-minute-a-day improvement in productivity. Wow. Uh, so this is the kind of data that convinces people, even though in corporate America, as you know, Anne-Marie, we still have uh, among those who are still living in the old paradigm. You know, people being congratulated for working 24-7. Right, right. The language that we have to change. I mean, somebody here in the linguistics department has to come up with better language than we're killing it, we're crashing it. And all that language of war, and CEOs still reading The Art of War as their favorite book. Uh, I think we should be giving them the giving tree or... <laughs> Or make, I love make, that. make way for ducklings, one of my favorite kindergarten <laughs> books. The best reason to be a caregiver is to reimmerse yourself in, in <laughs> <laughs> um, No, I, I, uh, 
<laughs> I love that. So we, I want to make sure other people have a chance to ask questions as well. Um, I, I think I can see you to call on you. I'll try. Uh, and there will be, there is a microphone. Somebody will bring a microphone to you, I think. Uh, and just uh, um, introduce yourself. So, floor is open. And maybe we can put the lights up more so we can yeah. see you. Now come now, the yeah. Princeton students. There we go, right there. Yeah. Right here. Yes. Here, here it comes. Is this one? Okay. Yes. Um, hi, my name is Sarah Wiest. I'm a senior in the English department. Um, thank you both so much for coming. First off, this was absolutely lovely. Um, I'm also here with my women's leadership class, so we're really excited about this event. Um, I actually wanted to bring um, something that we in class talked about a lot, which is um, especially pertinent to women, is motherhood. Um, not just for women who are mothers, but for those who want to help mothers or for those who know mothers. Um, recently, I don't know if everyone has seen this, a YouTube video has been circulating where people have been interviewing for this job that is 24 hours, no breaks, and in the end it ends up being a gag where the interviewer says, oh, it's a mom. Um, so I kind of just wanted to know what you guys thought of that. Like, since that just came out, I was kind of shocked that in this day and age that that came out as a message to young people that was college students interviewing for this job. So I just kind of wanted to bring that to the table and hear your all's thoughts about that. So I, I just wrote something about this. So, so to start, uh, to, I, it's important to start by, this is actually a hallmark. It's an advertising campaign to get you to buy a Mother's Day card. Uh, <laughs> and it's not entirely clear whether it isn't staged, but I found it quite unsettling uh, it, for a number of reasons. I mean, one, it had this total selfless vision of motherhood, what uh, uh, Virginia Woolf called the angel in the house, right? Where entirely self-sacrificing, and the way that the interviewer describes it, it's, you know, you're, you're, it's 24-7, you're always there, you're always, uh, you, you, first your associate, you don't get to eat until your associate's eaten, there's no vacations. So, and I thought, that's ridiculous, that's not my, certainly not the way I'm a mother. I'm not always there for my kids. I, I hope I'm there when it's important, but I'm definitely not always there. And that vision of motherhood, I, I would be so unhappy if that were the way I had to be a mother. Uh, and I think I'd be a very bad mother if I had to be a mother that way. So I thought it was reinforcing stereotypes that are, you know, better left pre-Virginia Woolf. Uh, but uh, I also thought, you know, there's no mention of dads, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a problem. And to Ariana's point, there's no mention of all the pleasures of motherhood, mm -hmm. like reading reading children's books to your kids, whether it's Make Way for Ducklings or, you know, whatever your favorites are. I mean, I could recite Goodnight Moon and Wood long distance on a regular basis. <laughs> but, I mean, just, and the moments of wonder, right? You write about wonder in your book and how those moments, whether you're seeing something beautiful or you're feeling something intense, Raising children is, are full of those moments, you know, where you just experience the joy of a child, even if it's a, a silly Disney movie. I love Frozen, actually, and I didn't even <laughs> need my kids. Uh, <laughs> but so I, I, I really thought it, 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 it graded on me in, in, in a number of those ways. So. Yes, I completely agree, and I was 
talking with you and, and, and some of your fellow students from the um, women's leadership in modern America class, and we were talking about how, um, why is it harder sometimes for women to, to be in leadership positions? And um, since I'm already asked them, answered the mother question, I wanted to answer that question that you raised earlier, which I think basically, leaving aside the institutional barriers for women, which are very real and they exist, but there's something we can do right now about dealing with our, our own internal barriers to becoming leaders. And for me, those have a lot to do with those voices in our heads that put us down, that are feeding our self-doubts and our fears. And it's a voice that I call the obnoxious roommate living in my head. <laughs> and our mind was very, very intense when I was your age. And, and I, I mean, I remember that the most draining thing in my life was listening to that voice. It was not what I was doing, um, it was just that voice. And uh, mine was very sardonic. And I remember when I was on Stephen Colbert's show recently, I told him that my obnoxious roommate sounded exactly like him. <laughs> <laughs> but I think learning to dissociate from that voice, to make it clear that that voice is not the truth, and that voice is not who we are. It's key, because all the things that we are working to have, you know, confidence and um, the ability to take the risk and ask, even if you are turned down, all those things become so much easier when that voice doesn't have the power it has often, especially in women's brains. Absolutely. And negative fantasies, you know, because that voice often goes into the future and makes us worry about things. And as Montaigne said, there are many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happen. <laughs> Another one. Yes, there. Oh, hi. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your critique of corporate culture's effects on women's personal lives. And I would love to talk more about the structural issues. Um, I find it very troubling that 70% of unpaid interns are women. And I'm wondering what you as women in power, who are in charge of corporations and other women who maybe have corporations that uh, use unpaid labor, uh, what responsibility women in power have towards other women who don't aren't as fortunate um, or don't have as much power um, to create structures that will allow them to survive and thrive. Great. And you are? Oh, my name is Vivian Chen. I'm a senior at Princeton. Yes, in fact, we see now that um, we've had two kinds of women, right? We've had women who um, have been very successful, and then they felt they had to uh, outmatch the men. And, um, and that has been a problem. But I think now, as men are changing, more and more women are seeing that they have an incredible opportunity here when they reach positions where they can make changes to actually implement a lot of these changes. And a lot of them are doing that. And, uh, and, and getting also tremendous returns. That this, this is what is amazing. There is no trade-off. Increasingly, as we are moving into the second machine age, as it, as it has been called, yes, which is a great where book. more and more functions um, at work are being taken over by algorithms and technology. What we're going to value more than anything is um, 
creativity, good ideas. Um, I was at the University of Miami recently with, speaking with Donna Shalala, and uh, she described the Clinton White House. You know, she was the longest serving HHS secretary. <laughs> she said, I had to sleep with my briefing books in bed with me because President Clinton could call at any time, midnight, one in the morning, to ask some recondite question about Medicare. And she said to me, you know, when you look back, that chaos was not necessary. It didn't make anybody more effective. Indeed, President Clinton is quoted in my book saying that the most important mistakes I made in my life I made when I was tired. He did not specify what mistakes. But <laughs> <laughs> collecting women like you, you want to see more of, um, who are role models, like Anne-Marie, like Donna Shalala, who also said something really great when we had a conversation like Anne-Marie and I are having now, and she said, you have to be rested to lead. Yes. Because she said, the truth is that as a leader, there will be times when you will be called in the middle of the night, or when you have to be on 24-7, and then you have reserves to draw as opposed to op be operating on, on empty. And when you, are re when you are rested, you are more able to deal with complexity. And you are not as reactive. And you are not as overwhelmed by obstacles and challenges. Um, so I just want to mention one other woman, because when we talk about pauses in our lives and renewal periods, you know, of course, we have the ultimate role model of God, who famously took the seventh day off after he created seven after he created heaven and earth and all the seas. But if you don't want to talk about God, uh, Patmos Re Warrior is the chief technology officer of Cisco, and she runs tens of thousands of engineers. She talks about sleeping eight hours a day, meditating, writing haikus, painting, and every Saturday doing a digital detox. So for me, when I heard that from her, um, I thought to myself, you know, if the CTO of Cisco can do a digital detox, so can I. It's a little bit like if Nelson Mandela can forgive his, uh, the people who imprisoned him and tortured him, I can forgive the people I'm holding a grudge against. <laughs> so, you know, these are like uh, amazing models that show us something. So it's interesting when you talk, we're talking about Bill Clinton and earlier when you're talking about what I call time macho. I remember reading the bio, one of the, I think it's David Moranis' biography of Clinton, and he describes when Clinton is a, a college student at Georgetown, he trained himself to live on two to three hours of sleep a night. And I remember reading that and thinking, you know, if that's what it takes, I'm never going to make it because I, I can't do that on two or three hours. But it was really his view that that is what it took to be a leader. Right. But then obviously having been president and having gone through that, he then looks back and says, actually, you know, that was crazy. I mean, that, that, it actually does worry me that the people at the White House who are making life and death decisions for us are chronically sleep deprived. I, I, um, I just want to say one thing about paid interns and non-paid interns, which is something we talk about a lot at New America and, and trying to move to all paid interns. But this is also a place where um, I think leaning in is very important. Right? I've had, in the time that I've been at New America, I've had at least three young women ask me for raises or ask me for a higher starting salary 
that I know, or I'm fairly certain, at least in one case I absolutely know, and in the other two I'm pretty sure, they would not have done before reading Lean, Lean yes. In. And I think, so there, it's not just, it's particularly young women, it's actually all students, but, but being, being able to say, will you pay me? Right? You know, I, I don't want to work for nothing, or what are you paying? Or if you're getting paid, am I getting paid, paid enough? As you said before, there's, there, are places we need, there are places we need to slow down and lean back, but there still are places we need to lean in, oh, and that, that's a good example. Absolutely. There's really no contradiction between these things. It's just kind of integrating everything. It's, it's the way we've been living our lives um, for many years in our culture has been to, to ignore the need to lean back. Let's see here, somewhere in the, uh, I just want to make sure that we're there. A gentleman. Hi, uh, thank you both so much you for coming. I enjoyed this discussion. Um, my name is Nick Sarasua, and I'm a graduate student at the Woodrow Wilson School here of Public Policy. And one thing that really stood out to me from your discussion was um, just talking about the whole macho complex of viewing burnout as very successful traits of a leader. And, you know, for the past couple of years, I've been thinking of um, different ways we can re-socialize men and boys to be more in tune with uh, their emotions and feelings in hopes of, of becoming more successful leaders. And I think this conversation about redefining success is, a, is an amazing start, um, but I wonder what steps we can do uh, earlier uh, in, a, in a boy's life to kind of prevent um, these kind of narrow visions of success from becoming the mainstream. I think offer um, new role models. For, for young boys, it could be athletes, it could be musicians, it could be um, a lot of men who are leading their lives differently, and, and also a lot of men who made the mistake of, of leading their lives through burnout and sleep deprivation and exhaustion, who can now look back and say, I didn't need to do that. I would have been even more effective. Because the truth is, if you look at Bill Clinton, he, could have, he would have been successful at whatever he did. It wasn't because he slept all three hours. He would have avoided a lot of mistakes, which were huge distractions. And, and the same can be said of uh, the lives of many leaders, because after all, leadership is about two big things. It's about seeing the icebergs before they hit the Titanic, and about seeing the opportunities that others don't see. And I think if we can show these new role models um, to young boys early on, um, it can begin to change what they value and what they want to emulate. I agree. And I think a lot about this um, in the book that I'm writing. You know, some of it, some of it also has to be around boys and, and as caregivers, boy, thinking about, it's not, it's not just how you work and when you work, it's more allowing our sons mm -hmm. the same choices that I think many of us are now giving our daughters. In other words, I actually think we're raising 
our daughters with more choices than we are our sons. We are saying to our daughters, you can be caregivers or breadwinners or any combination in between. You can be a stay-at-home mom, you can be working part-time, you can, yeah, and we assume you'll have a career, but how you want to combine that career with either taking care of children or taking care of parents or just be taking care of those you love. But we're still telling our sons, you know, you can be an engaged father, but there's no question you're going to be a breadwinner. Right? No question you're going to be a provider. And I actually think if we're going to really see human beings in, in the round, uh, fully in the round, then we have to expand roles for men in a pretty substantial way, which goes beyond, it, it actually goes how we think about the role of men in our society as well as women. And when we redefine success, that's going to help because part of redefining success is including giving yes. as what makes a full, thriving life. And now we have this amazing amount of science that shows that giving is truly a shortcut to happiness. Because while we're getting, however much we have, we're still operating from a place of lack. There's still something that we want to get that we don't yet have. When we're giving, we're operating from abundance. And that's why working to create a culture where go-givers are valued as much as go-getters <laughs> is going to be transformational. <laughs> okay. Um, there some, some, yes, there. Hi, my name is Alex Kasdan. I'm a senior here, also with the women's leadership class. Um, I just had a question. Uh, you touched on this briefly in uh, your opening remarks, um, that uh, the importance of redefining success away from these monetary goals. And I completely agree with you that having more time for ourselves and giving and all these things you're discussing makes us more balanced people, which thus makes us more efficient and able to attain these conventional um, positions of success, monetary success, and leadership roles, but let's say we're an individual that doesn't see that we're able to maintain that balance and have this happy personal life and also have these high-paying jobs or really, really powerful jobs. How do we define success in our society such that you don't need those jobs to be successful? That I think that I, I would love you to touch on that as well. <laughs> so I think that's where we need to look at what is it that we want? And not just look at what is it that society uh, considers the best jobs. And that is what is so exciting right now. There are people, um, for example, who are choosing to follow what they love and join Etsy.com and make money that way, or to create a, start a startup about what they love. So it's not any longer just assuming that the most important jobs are on Wall Street or the most important jobs are the ones that have the biggest starting salaries. And, and that's why I think um, the book that Marina Keegan wrote, you know, the, the Yale graduate who was killed five days after her graduation and wrote this beautiful book, I mean, posthumously, they collected her, her writings and uh, about these two things. First of all, the recognition of how fragile life is, and therefore we really need to listen to ourselves in terms of what we want to do, 
and not just how we want to do what society assumes everybody should want to do, because we are all so unique. And, and also, as she said, when she said, I look around, I, I see that in my graduation, uh, I'm going to be sitting at least next to one person who is going to, to Wall Street. Do they really, do really 50% of Yale graduates want to go to Wall Street? This is not against Wall Street or investment banking. This is simply saying, is that really what so many graduates want to do? Or are there other things, other parts of themselves that they're giving up in the process because they think that's the way to, to keep score? We need to change the way we keep score. I, 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 and one way to think about this very concretely is Americans always ask each other, what do you do? Yes. Right? Other cultures do not exactly. immediately ask each other, what do you do? In fact, I just heard the Dano, Danish consul general say that in Denmark, people who work all the time are regarded as boring, right? Because you haven't, you haven't read a book, you haven't gone to a play, you haven't engaged in some kind of activity. And so one way I think about how you change this at a micro level is stop yourself the next time you turn to someone and say, what do you do? And say, what book have you read recently, right? I mean, you know, or, or what, what have you done recently that is interesting in some, some way? It's just a micro way of, of changing that assumption that what you do and how well you do it is the definition of who you are. Okay, they're in the, uh, in the is there, are there people upstairs? I'm completely ignoring the people upstairs. Yes, yeah. there. <laughs> Hi, I'm a freshman here. And over the last couple months, it's become clear that universities like ours, Harvard and Yale, are struggling to monitor and handle um, the student mental health problems that come out of the pressure to work all the time at the cost of sleep and enjoyment. What type of moves do you think an institution like ours can make to start encouraging students to approach life and success in the way you're supporting in your book? I think it's such an important question, and I, I write in, in Thrive about my own experience with that, because uh, my oldest daughter um, was two months uh, away from graduating from Yale, uh, when I got the call that every parent dreads, mommy, I can't breathe. She had gotten involved in drugs. So the, the drive from New York to New Haven was the longest drive I can remember. To find her in an emergency room and to start this process of recovery, I'm, I'm happy to say she's been sober for two years. She went back to Yale this, uh, this fall and graduated and has a job in Los Angeles. Uh, but in the course of working with Christina, I saw just how much mental health leading to mental health issues leading to drugs, either prescription or illegal, leading to the kind of drinking that's happening in all around America now in colleges, that literally you end up blanking out. Um, depression, all these things, is just such a manifestation of stress. And, and I think the fact that now colleges are taking it more seriously and dealing with it, it's not just from the top down, but also what, what we are doing with each other, what students are doing with their friends, how, how we can have these conversations. So we don't kind of 
treated like something that is in an inevitable part of student life because it doesn't have to be an inevitable part of student life. So we're just about out of time, but I want to give time for one last question. <laughs> okay, over there. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Ariane. It's so good to see you. Linda Noble-Toth. So good to see you. I want to thank you for writing the cover quote on my, my new book, Wheelchair Wisdom, Awaken Your Spirit Through Adversity. One of the things in Wheelchair Wisdom is for the caregivers, the caregivers, the people, people who take care of people with illness, and what they can do for themselves that, that stops the stress of themselves and also the people and care the people who are ill, like myself. So thank you for writing that book too. Thank you so much. I quote Joan Halifax, who works um, uh, with um, people who are ill, who works with people in hospices, and and she writes about this issue of caregivers, who so often feel that the way to be truly giving is not to give to themselves and they burn out and they often leave what they are doing earlier and and i think that's something which all across our culture we need to relearn it's really like what we are told on airplanes you know put your own oxygen mask first <laughs> you know even before you put it on your children which especially as mothers goes right against the grain but that's when again we're going to be most effective and ultimately most nurturing and you know, I just want to say that this, is, this has been such an amazing conversation, and I would love to continue it on the Huffington Post. So I want to make it super easy for you to send your ideas, um, write about anything you want, including we have a, a hashtag, um, hashtag how I thrive, yes. which is a little bit like exchanging recipes. We learn from each other, like when I when I read Anne-Marie's Watching Her Birds, it made me like more aware of, of the birds around because so often, <laughs> you know, it's like you walk around and you, you see so many people buried in their smartphones and or even texting while walking, which is very dangerous, <laughs> <laughs> that we, we don't notice things. And so we can help each other notice things and and learn little new tools and practices we can apply. So I'm going to make it super easy by giving you my email address, which is Ariana with one R and two Ns, at HuffingtonPost.com. You see, one of the good things about founding a company is you get a good email address. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, if um, we have some comp seats for students, if anybody wants to come to New York, for our Thrive Conference, which starts on Thursday night and then goes on all day Friday. Again, please let me know at that address or let Danny or Alexis. Say that again? Thrive on campus at HuffingtonPost.com. Yes. Danny is in charge of all thriving on campuses. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I want to thank you. I mean, I, I really, I meant what I said initially, that you've been at the, at really at the cutting edge of, of, of digital journalism, but also you've reinvented yourself most, multiple times over your life. And you really have, you, you've gone you know, from politics to journalism to, write, to, to being an author. 
And I love the fact that this is really, um, you are, are giving us, I think, as I said, a, a broader sense of what it means to lead the good life, to thrive, to succeed. And, but above all, you're really saying we should be in touch with what we want to do, right? It's the sort of core goal, ultimately, and, and traditionally, of what a liberal arts education is about. It's saying, you know, read, educate yourself, have the courage to define who you want to be and how you want to live your life. So I thank you. I have to tell everybody, Ariana will be signing books afterwards, so you can get your own copy of Thrive and have her sign it. And thank you for coming to Princeton. Thank you so much.